0: Welcome to Sparking Action. This is a podcast that showcases ordinary people creating extraordinary lives through the power of inspired action. My name is Vera Ilnitsky, a marketer, life coach, and passionate advocate for healthy and active living. In Sparking Action, I have informative and inspiring conversations with people who have taken and are taking bold action to change their life, reach amazing goals, make a positive impact on the world, and create success on their own terms. My intent is to create a supportive space that inspires, informs, and motivates, because I truly believe that learning from others can spark our own inspired action to create positive change, reach our goals, and gain momentum for better living. Have you ever felt hopeless? Have you ever felt hope? What does hope mean? According to Lindsay Recknell, who was my guest today, hope means the future will be better than today by taking action over the things we can control. Lindsay is an expert in hope, and in our conversation, we talk about the science of hope, how to take intentional action to move out of hopelessness and into a state of flourishing and wellness, and lots of other inspirational and educational nuggets. I hope you learn from this conversation. Hi, Lindsay. Welcome to Sparking Action. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm really excited to have you here, and um. I know that you are an expert in hope, among other things, which we'll get into, but I'm really curious to dive right into that. What an expert in hope means, how you got started, and what hope means to you.
1: Yeah, I can talk about this for hours, so uh, you may have just opened Pandora's box. Um, So for me, hope is a very personal, I've been on a very personal journey with hope. I recognized The day I recognized I lost my hope was the day I recognized I got it back. And I consider myself a reasonably self-aware kind of person. You know, I've taken, read all the books, I've taken all the courses, done all the things. And so I was, this moment, this totally innocuous moment really blindsided me because I thought I'm reasonably self-aware. How did I not know that I was feeling hopeless, that I was not striving towards you know, my goals, that I was just going through the motions. I mean, I was doing all the things that's expected of, you know, an adult. I was going to work. I was getting the groceries. I was putting on pants, all of the things. Um, But I just realized that I wasn't doing it with my regular kind of zest for life. There'd been a lot going on in my life at the time. Um, I was suffering from some extreme burnout at work. We were going through mental health and addiction at home. There was just a lot. And looking back on it now, I think, well, obviously you had lost hope. There was so much going on. It's this thing called burnout. It's this thing called hopelessness. But I didn't know what it was called or how to articulate it. And for me, once I identified that there's a problem, my answer is to go looking for the solution. So I read a lot. I sometimes say that my biography could be, she was born, she learned to read, she did things with what she learned, and someday she will die. Because I just, I just, I learn to read, and I learn, and I use things um, from what I learn. And what I learned was this thing called the science of hope. It's a field of science within positive psychology. Positive psychology being a sort of um, antithesis to traditional psychology. So, if you think about traditional psychology as the science of decreasing sadness, positive psychology is the science of increasing wellness, leading to human flourishing. It's been around since the 80s, 1980s, sort of founded by a a scientist called Dr. Martin Seligman out of the University of Pennsylvania. He was the uh, president of the American Psychology psychology association I'm such a hard time with that word american psychology association and he had been doing research for uh, decades before that on um on learned helplessness is kind of where he started or he where he was at at this point but he recognized that not only could we learn to be helpless but we could also learn to flourish and so at, in his tenure as president he um That was his main focus uh, of his research, kind of from there on. And when I learned how science works in the brain, how there's a hope circuit, or how hope works in the brain and how there's a hope circuit that is actually neurobiologically impacted by our ability to look into the future and take action on, on those dreams, I felt so validated. I mean, we all know intuitively, that hope is a thing, right? You know what it feels like to feel hopeful. You know that bubbly, intuitive kind of feeling within you. But I didn't realize until I read the research and listened to, listened to the speakers and learned all of the evidence and, um, and research studies that are going on to support this power, I didn't realize how impactful it could actually be on our lives.
0: Mm. What did hopelessness feel like to you? Mm.
1: Uh, It felt blah. It felt empty. It felt no, it did not feel joyful. Um, I am typically a pretty positive person. Um, It didn't take away my positivity. It just felt blah. I, I had stopped looking forward to the future. I was really about every 10 minutes at a time all I could manage was feeling like I can do this next 10 minutes, not even next hour. Sometimes I could just do this next 10 minutes at a time. Um, and yeah, I just, it was just status quo going through the motions, not reaching for that future better than today, which is how I'd loved my life, you know, for all of my 38 and a half years
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) at the time. Was it something that Happened overnight, do you think, or was it something oh, yeah. that just happened incrementally and you didn't really even realize that it was happening?
1: Yeah, I can't. Um, I definitely looking back, I know that there was inputs into that, but it wasn't one big catastrophe that created that for me. Um, that's a really insightful question, actually, because I feel like hopelessness is gradual, it does kind of sneak up on you. I don't know that it's um that you are aware of it regardless of how self aware you are and uh, you know i used to laugh because i'm not a very deep thinker i'm not a very introspective person um and so although i'm self aware it's mostly happens that self-awareness sort of comes afterwards not while I'm in the moment of it because I'm not very intentional about that which I think is a skill that I have learned over the last four years of doing this work is to be more introspective but um, I think it probably snuck up on me a little bit uh, more silent than some other people who are more self-aware sort of while it's happening or checking with themselves even more often.
0: Yeah I'm asking that question because I'm just wondering if people can recognize that in themselves. Mm -hmm. And I hear a lot of people saying, I feel blah, especially right now, people feel very heavy. Um, They're feeling stressed. We're obviously still in the middle of a pandemic. So amongst other things happening to people. So that's why I'm asking, like, is there something that you think is universal that people would feel, or is it something that's very personal?
1: So I do believe that hope is very personal, but I do think that the feeling of hopelessness is quite universal. I do I truly believe that hope is on a scale and it shifts depending on the moment, depending on the situation, depending on the sort of season of life. But the feeling of hopelessness is that when you've lost that zest for the future, when you've stopped looking forward to what's next, when you don't feel like you can do the next thing because it's just too hard, um, when taking action, feels like you might as well ask me to walk on the moon, you know, when it just seems too impossible to do that next thing that, uh, that describes hopelessness to me.
0: How does that tie into mental health? Mm.
1: Um, so it ties into mental health because, so hope is a feeling, is an emotion, is a, um, you know, a chemical response in our body. But it also contributes to our physical health, because if we're not feeling mentally well, we often will lose the desire to do anything physically well for us as well. Right. We uh, I mean, addictions happen because we're not feeling awesome about ourselves uh, in our minds typically. Um, You know, uh, we stop exercising, we stop eating well, we, we look to the other unhealthy ways to cope when we're not feeling our best. Um, And so that just compounds the problem, right? If we aren't exercising, you know, uh, a body in motion stays in motion, right? A body at rest stays at rest. So if you're not Doing that momentum, you're not going to continue taking taking that action. If you are not eating well, your body's not going to respond well, which means you're going to not continue to feel well, right? It's incrementally detrimental to you when you can't take those take that action, do those steps. If you are, not feeling well in your mind, you are not going to show up as your best self either. So your relationships with your people around you your will be, will be negatively impacted. Those connections you're making, your work will likely be negatively impacted because you are not able to show up as your best self. You may, you may retreat into yourself. I know that that was a huge a huge impact on my personal life is I got very quiet. I retreated into my own world. You know, I stopped talking out loud. I stopped sharing anything important. Um, if you recognize in yourself that you are no longer <clears throat> sort of talking about anything important to you, keeping your conversation sort of surface so that nobody pries any deeper, um, that's, you know, those are some more signs that you could be in a, in a hopeless place.
0: Yeah. Like speaking of self-awareness, it takes self-awareness to know when you're in that space. So do you have any advice for how to become more self-aware and to kind of stop that circuit or that cycle of getting into hopelessness?
1: So a couple of things come to mind right off the bat, Um, that whole introspection thing, uh, checking in, however that looks like for you, whether it's literally stopping and saying to yourself, how am I feeling today? Am I still working towards my goals? Have I showered today? Those kinds of things being intentional about asking yourself those questions. Maybe it's your daily journal activity where you are just, you know, writing out what you're feeling or how you're feeling about life these days. And the other thing is get the people that you trust around you to to tell you, um, you know, ask those people that you trust how they are seeing you, what their perception of your energy is like these days. Have they noticed a change in your behavior? Have they noticed you retreating and not connecting as often? you know you they say that you are impacted the most by the five the five people you spend the most time with. So pick those people wisely and ask them if they've noticed that you may be sliding into, into a hopelessness state.
0: Mm-hmm. You said something interesting earlier around, even when you felt hopeless, you still maintained your positivity. I'm really curious about that because we hear a lot about having a positive mindset and keeping positive, and we need to be positive. And that's interesting to me that you still maintain that. So was it kind of a false positive? Y- you know what I mean? Like how explain that to me?
1: So I, I believe that positivity and hopefulness are two parallel, but different things. Optimism falls in there as well. So positivity and optimism are often uh, used interchangeably. The difference between, between optimism and hopefulness in my mind is that action piece. So To feel positive and to feel optimistic, I do have expectations that things are going to turn out okay. I know that I have some control over my actions and that the choices I make will get me closer to wherever I want to be. I know that I I believe that things will work out. I believe that, you know, I believe the best in people. I believe that I have agency over my own, um, my own sort of destiny, But I also know that I need to take action towards those things. And it's that action that differentiates hopeful people will continue to take action. No matter how small that action is, they will continue to move towards that more hopeful future, as opposed to just believing that it's going to be. One of my favorite things to say is that hope without action is just a wish. Hmm. And if you are, you know, optimistic people are often wishful people as opposed to hopeful people are those that take action towards that future better than today
0: have you found in your work that sometimes people don't know how to take that action or they're in a place where like you said before they just you don't feel like taking that action so how do you overcome that inertia
1: Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, not only in my work, but in my personal life, we were talking before we hit record today that I went on the worst run this morning. And I am a, I consider myself a runner, <clears throat> but to even get my sorry butt <clears throat> into my running shoes this morning was the worst. So I think that is also a human experience where sometimes we just don't feel like it. Um, whether it's we feel like it's too hard. We don't know what to do next. There's too many things and it's all overwhelming. And so we completely shut down or we just can't fathom having enough energy to do anything at all. Literally start the smallest place you can think of. If you can't get out of bed today, start by wiggling your toes. I know that seems ridiculous, but if you can wiggle your toes, your brain goes, huh, I didn't think I could do that. But I can totally do that. So, what else can I do? Right? Start by wiggling your toes. Then maybe you knock your knees. Then maybe you shimmy your hips. And then eventually you're sitting up, your feet are on the floor, and you're in the shower. That momentum builds on momentum, builds on momentum until your brain knows that it's just the deep, dark part of you that's saying you can't do it when you actually can, and you just need to continue proving to yourself that you can. That is the easiest way to start, is to start with the absolute smallest thing you can do. Hmm. And then I would say, for me, something that really helps um, kind of on the um, like ongoing kind of maintenance of things, recognizing that I'm going to get back into these places where I just don't want to do the thing. Um, I'm huge on routine and habit. I exercise every morning because that's just my routine. There's no, there's no excuse. There's no anything on the days that I can, I work out at the same time, do the same exercise every day. It sounds ridiculously boring, but I know that my brain is accustomed to it and I just do it. It's no, there's no excuse my brain just knows there's no excuse to do it. The routine is just there. And I can save up
0: my energy for other things. What else do you do to keep yourself motivated and in action? Um, So I set goals. Um, For
1: me, that having something to look forward to having something to plan for. um, I am not by nature a structured thinker. That is not something that is a preference for me, but I know how well it works for me when I stay in that habit and routine. So if I can set a goal and then kind of work the plan backwards, I'm really good at following direction. <laughs> really good at being told what to do, even if it's only myself telling me what to do. Um, so I do, I set those goals and then create a plan by working backwards to get me to that place. The other big thing is to have grace um, it's not always going to work out in a perfect way. You know, I have, so I was telling you earlier, I like to work out at six 30 in the morning, winter is hard, or that, that time period between winter and spring is hard because I like to be outside. And at six 30 in the morning, it's dark. And I, I don't feel comfortable being outside when it's dark. So I really have to motivate myself at those, during this time period to continue working out at six 30 and sometimes it just doesn't work. Sometimes I have a meeting at seven and I have to shower before that, you know, so have some grace for yourself if it doesn't work out, don't go looking for those excuses, uh, so that it just can't possibly work out, but have some grace with yourself. If it does, we know that life gets in the way and other people's emergencies become our problem, no matter how proactive we are about it. Um, that is actually my word for the year for 2021 is "grace, because I'm trying to be focused on having grace in my own life and having grace for other people as well.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Thanks for sharing that. When you do have those days where you're feeling a bit discouraged or unmotivated, how do you get out of that?
1: Um) Have you? Do you know Mel Robbins? Have you heard of her? Yes. Do you know her theory of five, four, three, two, one?
0: <laughs> I do, but can you explain it?
1: Yeah. So the five second rule—it's uh, ridiculous, and it totally works every time. So her deal is that you—if there's something you don't want to do—you count down from five, and on one you go. You do the thing. Counting is routine. Counting is habit. You don't have to think about that. By the time your brain catches up to what you've got going on, what you're doing why, when that part of the brain catches up, you're already doing the thing. It doesn't have time to give you an excuse not to do the thing. So if you just get into the habit of every time you count down from five, your brain knows that neural pathway. And at one, it just goes and does the thing that'll give you enough time to get started. And once you start often, that's all it takes, right? Taking that first step is always the hardest step. So the cliche goes, um, but if you can start the thing before your brain gives you an excuse not to, that helps as well. Um, Sometimes it's thinking for me, sometimes it's thinking about the external motivation. So I really like to take photos on my adventures, on my exercise to look for beauty. It's intentional about looking for beauty. And also I, so I posted on social media, People tell me that they look forward to seeing those pictures. That's motivation for me. It's intentional to find the beauty. And I know that I'm bringing beauty to other people because they've shared that with me. My husband thinks it's ridiculous that I post on social media about, you know, trees in our neighborhood, but uh, it's good for me and it seems to be good for other people. So that helps me. That gives me a little bit of extra motivation as well.
0: Yeah. And you said before that you weren't really intentional, but I think you are because you are intentionally doing that. And you're also getting satisfaction from it, both personally, like internally, intrinsically, Mm -hmm. and also externally, which is really important. What about social connections and people around you in terms of support? How important is that?
1: Connection is super, super important. And I didn't recognize how important it was or what an impact it makes on my overall well-being until I drew back. So I mentioned at the beginning the um, overwhelm and and burnt out that I, the burnout that I experienced four years ago Uh, while I was going through it before I kind of reached this pivotal moment of, of going on the path to transformation um I really went internal I really pulled back from everyone um didn't want to feel judged didn't want to feel weak any of those things and I remember speaking to a girlfriend the very first person I ever told what was going on in my mind and it was just like oh you know this ta-da moment of relief and um like sobbing and this whole like oh my goodness, you are not alone in this. You don't have to do this by yourself. You absolutely need the people around you to support you. The real people are not going to judge and the ones that do need to get the hell out anyway. So that connection was really, really important. I'm not naturally uh, wired for connection I, um, so some of the work that I do is in a tool called Emergenetics, which talks about how we think. And one of the quadrants of thinking is called social thinking, which is people that are naturally, uh, intuitive about people and their, and, um, the responses to people and how, you know, data and and things impact themselves and other people. I'm not naturally wired that way. So. I think that's why it was kind of such a surprise to me that I needed people as much as I do. So it's definitely something that I work on to make those connections because I recognize
0: how powerful they can be. You were saying that sometimes it's just people feel embarrassed or they feel they need to do this by themselves. And I just wonder like why we feel that way. Like why don't, why are we feeling that we're the only ones going through this? When as soon as you tell someone, they usually say, I know how you feel, or Mm -hmm. I know someone else who's going through this. So why do we find it so challenging to share our stories and our personal struggles?
1: I think because for so long, it wasn't okay. Right. For so long we were um, conditioned to be strong, to appear strong our definition of strength was much, much different. I would suggest that our definition of strength now is about that vulnerability, is about that authenticity and having the courage to speak out loud and to do the things. Whereas not that long ago, the definition of strong was sort of stoicism and not showing pain or not showing fear or any of those things. And so I think i I mean, I'm happy to say that I think it's changing, but it definitely is new, um, sort of evolutionarily speaking, or even, even community speaking. I also think until we go through something, it's not personal to us. We are inclined to judge that which we don't understand. Also, when we don't understand, fear is a natural response, as opposed to curiosity and compassion having gone through what i've gone through in the last 4 years my capacity for compassion is exponential my non-judgment is way stronger is way bigger is way you know broader than it ever was before because i have i have personal experience now that i didn't have before and also i have that self-awareness that i didn't have before and a a different approach to life and to people and to other experiences that is much more curiosity focused as opposed to judgment focused, not intentionally. I never would have considered myself a judgmental person, but I definitely looking back was judgmental simply out of ignorance.
0: Yeah. How do you think we can nurture those conversations and, That community of trust and openness and vulnerability? Curiosity
1: has been a huge
0: one. Asking asking insightful questions
1: uh, and listening to the answer. You can't just ask the question and then not listen to the answer. Uh, I think listening is a totally underrated skill. Um, I think that staying present in a conversation is something that we all can learn to do better. And Matching our walk with our talk. Hmm. So, you know, in our organizations, as an example, we say we have an open door policy, yet our doors is always closed, right? That physical barrier totally contradicts what we're saying our open door policy is. It's no different in our personal relationships or when we're trying to have conversations with our with our friends, with our family. <clears throat> if you say, you know what, I'm always here for you. you, you know, whatever you need, yet anytime that they ask, there's always a reason that you're unavailable or you can't make the time or something that is completely contradictory to what you're actually telling them. I think that's really important as well is to recognize where those inconsistencies might be and change your behavior to match what you're saying out loud.
0: Back to the self-awareness. Yeah. Damn (laughs) self-awareness. It's good for us. (laughs) How do you stay present in conversations and really listen? This is a learned skill.
1: (laughs) Definitely. um, So our brains are wired to be the most efficient and in a conversation, it is typical that we will, our brain will go ahead in the conversation, especially if we think we've already heard this story, we already know the answer, we've been asked this question before, we're naturally inclined to get ahead in the conversation. And so first off, it's that self-awareness again, to recognize this about our brain, and to intentionally override that uh, default mechanism in our mind. How can we stay present? Well, we can bring a piece of paper and a pen to the conversation because if we're going to have an idea or a thought that's going to distract us, we can quickly write it down and get back to being present. So we're not focused on, oh my god, I can't I can't forget this thing that I want to tell them when they're done talking. Um, we can also um, be have important conversations or have conversations in a great physical location. So, If you are someone who is naturally extroverted, you get your energy from being around people and from um, not distraction, but... um, um. What's the word I'm looking for? Stimulation. Stimulation. Thank you. From stimulation, so have a conversation in a coffee shop. Have a conversation on a walk. Have a conversation. You know where there. You know where there's music playing in the background because that's going to help you stay present because you're in the most comfortable, stimulating environment for you. If you're more often introverted and you get easily distracted, have conversations one-on-one in a quiet place where it feels calm and soothing to you, or Also on a walk, but maybe down, you know, a garden pathway instead of downtown Calgary, you know, so be intentional again, be intentional about where you are having these kinds of conversations so that you can stay present and then stay curious. So when you're listening, listen for cues to how you can respond or listen for, um, cues to how they're feeling pay attention to the body language that the person you're speaking with is giving off so that you can continue to be compassionate and non-judgmental and um, be there for them and by focus by again being intentional about where you're focusing you will naturally stay present in the conversation because you're focused
0: on what's going on kind of in that little bubble that's really good advice thank you I just wanted to have a couple of definitions from you. You talked about burnout, and I just wonder what that means so that people know when they're approaching that, or maybe even if they're in burnout right now.
1: Mm -hmm. So burnout is, uh, it's more than just being stressed out. It is, it is more than being uh, too much. It's, It's more than too much stress, too much work, too much obligation, all of those things. It's that tipping point into not having enough not enough energy motivation really not having enough cares left to give it's it's when you've you've moved into that status quo cannot fathom taking one more step kind of position stress is the actual chemical response in your body to the stressors so which was light bulb moment for me because often we think if we get out of this stressful situation, if we finish that project, if we you know quit that job, if we get out of that bad relationship, that the stress will go away. But until you close that stress cycle, until you lower that stress chemical in your body, you won't get out of that burnout. You actually have to close the cycle and remove the stressor to get out of that, um, that place of burnout and be able to sort of come back to that more hopeful place. The good news is it's totally possible. Burnout is not a end state. It is not the only place you can ever be once you're there. You can absolutely stop the slide
0: and you can absolutely get back out even if you do get to that place. So am I hearing it correctly that it's physical and mental? Yeah. Totally.
1: Yep. A hundred percent. Burnout is both physical and mental. Um, kind of like we talked about at the very beginning, your mental state has so much impact on your physical state and vice versa. So when you just don't have enough energy, which is physical, uh, cares left to give, which is mental, emotional. You don't have anything for anybody else. You can't, you know, uh, be there in the way that you used to be there or feel like you can be there in the way you used to be there for other people, you know, emotional there's you, you have all the things, uh, burnout covers all the kinds of, um, sort of human conditions, human experiences.
0: Yeah. So it'd be a matter of determining where to even start. Like, Mm -hmm. is it seeing, a medical professional, or is it seeing someone who's more of a mental health professional? You know, I guess it's some of that determining where to start.
1: Mm -hmm. And you know what you it's not a bad idea to start with uh, a mental health professional at all, or your physical doctor. Start somewhere. The point is just start, whether you just start by talking to a friend, start by reading a book, start by learning more about what it is you're feeling and what options are out there for you. Um, I'm not a medical doctor. I am not a mental health professional. I'm not a licensed mental health professional. Um, But I'm so keep trying the thing that works. You just do something, take some sort of action, no matter how big or small it is, just take some kind of action. The other thing is that what works for your friend that you opened up to may or may not work for you, and also what worked for you last time may not work for you this time, which is frustrating and annoying and awful, because we want like a, you know, we want a recipe to follow that's going to work every time we want those cookies to come out the same way every time. And that is not how life goes. That is not how our, um, how flourishing happens. It needs to be adjusted and kind of measured and, um, you know, thought about and different actions taken in, in different scenarios. And it may not work the first time, but keep trying. I promise something will work. You just have to keep trying.
0: Mm -hmm. So on the more positive flip side, what's your definition of wellness and flourishing?
1: The future will be better than today by taking action over the things you can control. That's my definition of hope. So if we are thinking about a future better than today, my definition of human flourishing is when we are striving towards that future better than today. We are looking for joyful moments. We are connecting with people that are important to us, that bring us up, that make us feel good about ourselves and the people around us. Uh, It is when we are um, feeling intentional about what we're giving into the world, we're probably giving back to the world in small and big ways that make us feel good and are making an impact on those around us. Um, When we are in in alignment with our values and continuing to align our behavior with those values and continuing to walk the talk aligned with those values um, and accomplishing and living and just being in a way that feels really good to us. Flourishing is also on a scale. It's not always awesome. It's not always easy. And in fact, flourishing is can be hard, but it's coming through those hard things on the other side of it that builds resiliency, which leads us to feeling better about ourselves and builds our confidence, which leads to greater human flourishing.
0: Wow, I love the passion that you have on this topic. I <laughs> okay, really, really right. appreciate that. And I think what you said is important that it is a process. It's a journey. It's not just an overnight. There's nothing that we can take like an easy pill. There's no easy button for this. So it's really staying the course and having that, I guess, that motivation and just that capacity to know that things will be better and really sticking with it. Even when we have a bit of a down day, like this morning, you had a really tough run. It doesn't mean that tomorrow you're not going to go for a run and it's probably going to be awesome tomorrow
1: that whole grace thing, <laughs> you know, give yourself some grace. Um, the hardest things are usually the ones that are the most worth it. And also when it's not awesome, that's okay. It doesn't always have to be big action. It doesn't always have to be big Um movements or large demonstrations of success sometimes it is just taking that time to sit on the couch with your book maybe it's you know it is just feeling good about getting out of bed today and having a shower it is a journey it is a process and it is um i don't know how to describe the the ups and downs the hills and valleys of life. it It is, it goes on a spectrum and it is absolutely shifting sometimes every 10 minutes at a time. Sometimes, you know, you're feeling awesome for days or weeks or months or years.
0: What does the science of hope say about when you do feel sad or a, a, another negative emotion, like anger or frustration or resentment or something like that? Do we feel that? Like, how do we work our way through that as opposed to just, okay, I'm just going to like take some action. Hopefully it goes away.
1: Yeah. You definitely uh, want to feel it. You definitely want to work through it. You don't want to shut it down. You don't want to work around it. The only way is through, honestly, the only way is through. So feel it. Name it. There's a lot of research out there that supports naming it. Sometimes we don't have, don't feel like we have the language or the vocabulary to l- to know even what it is that we're feeling. So figure out what it is that you're feeling and name it because then you take back some of that control over your emotions, take back some of that power over your emotion. Um, My definition of hope includes that big, that word of control. If we can have agency over our emotions and our feelings and how we are our response to those, that's very, very hopeful. That works in a very hopeful way in the hope circuit in our brain, in the limbic system of our brain. So if we can feel some agency and feel some control over those emotions by naming them, by living them, by feeling them, but don't hang out there forever. Don't let it become an excuse uh, for you not taking action. You know, my dad used to say, you get a pity party, but then the party has to be over eventually. You know, you get to go through it and then you get to continue moving on. You need to continue taking that action, doing those things Um, once you're through but you definitely get to come through and
0: feel it first. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular resource you would suggest in terms of how to name those feelings? There's a number of really great books on
1: hope Mm -hmm. and the science of hope and kind of using hope in our lives. One is called Making Hope Happen by Dr. Shane Lopez. He's a positive psychologist and really was the first one to take the science of hope out of academia and into real life. He was a Gallup researcher and has tons of cool applications. He talks a lot about naming emotions and how to use that vision for a better future um, in your daily life. He talks about it with kids. He talks about it in, in adults, tons of evidence and research to back that up. There's another book called hope rising by dr chan hellman and it's new it's 2019 i think and it talks about a ton of practical application for hope and talks about the over 2000 research studies done in this area to support how powerful hope can be as a tool for for human flourishing for productivity for you know um better health outcomes, uh, physical and mental health outcomes, uh, better, better results in school, better results in our career. And that's a very powerful book as well for the evidence, evidence to support this work. The number one book that I recommend anybody to read on this topic or any of these topics is The Book of Joy. It's a book by the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu on the occasion of the Dal- Dalai Lama's 80th birthday, and it's five days of dialogue that they had in India where they met to talk about joy. And if you can listen to it on Audible, it's even better because it's the Dalai Lama's translator and the Archbishop in his own voice. It is so good. So good. It talks about science. It talks about human flourishing. It talks about spirituality and laughing and. If you're going to read nothing, only read that one because it is so good. I have the Audible and I bought the book for everyone I know because it is that good.
0: That's awesome, Lindsay. I'm looking for more books to read. I just ordered a few, but I'm going to add these to my list. And I'll also post the link in the show notes for everyone that they can follow and um, buy those books as well. So thank you for those recommendations. That's really excellent. So this podcast is called Sparking Action. What advice would you give people to help them create a spark of action in their own life?
1: Mm -hmm. Dream big. I I am a personal empowerment uh, coach, I suppose. I believe in personal empowerment. I believe in using the power of of the science of hope to move towards our dreams. There is nothing that says you can't dream big. Um, Often we go, yeah, but, 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 but time, commitments, you know, financial, any of those things. Guess what? It does not hurt you to dream big. Do that first. Figure out what that future looks like for you. Find that hopeful feeling through that vision. Engage that limbic system in your brain towards that hopeful future, and then we'll figure out how to accomplish those things. But don't stop yourself from dreaming big because of the buts. Start with the end in mind, start with that dream, and then we'll figure out how to get there. Whatever is really important to you will totally get there. But first, you have to dream big. There is nothing that will hurt you in dreaming big. In fact, science proves that it's the only thing that will help you. It is the number one uh, thing that has been proven to lead us to a future better than today is by creating that vision vision for a more hopeful future. So dream Bake, You can totally do it.
0: Oh my gosh. I love that. I'm so excited. Thank you, Lindsay. I think that's a really good way to wrap up our conversation today. I really appreciate you coming on. You're so passionate about hope. I've learned so much in this conversation. I'm excited to read the books that you're recommending and learn more about the science of hope. I love that it's evidence-based and research-based. I think that's really important. I really admire your commitment to wellness and flourishing and to sharing your story and being open and vulnerable. I really look forward to continuing our friendship and our business relationship as well and learning about more of what you do. You've started numerous businesses. I know you're going to be starting more. And so I look forward to that. I will definitely post where we people can connect with you and learn more about hope and mental health in the show notes. So thank you so much for being my guest today.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I love what you're doing and I'm excited to see what happens next.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you did, please share with someone who you think might enjoy hearing it. And if you have an idea for a future guest on Sparking Action, please connect with me. Also, I'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and suggestions for the podcast. I look forward to connecting.